We're going to continue on in Esther, if you want to turn to Esther. Last week we began to look at the book, and the title of last week's message was Esther, God's Purpose Prevails in Hidden Providence. And this week our title is Esther, God's Purpose for Such a Time as This, which is out of verse 14 out of chapter 4, which we'll look at today. But getting back just for a minute to last week's message, God's Hidden Providence, and it's what makes the book of Esther both controversial and to me not so much controversial as awe-inspiring. So it's controversial because, as I said last week, God's name's not ever mentioned once in the entire book. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible where his name's not mentioned. And for that reason, there's a lot of people that didn't like it, including the late, great Martin Luther. Now, Luther is a bit of a character, if you know much about that guy. I mean, he's pretty outspoken and had opinions, and that said a lot of right things and a lot of good things, but <laughs> he definitely wasn't flawless and had some opinions that you know could leave a little bit to be desired. He didn't particularly like the book of Esther, wasn't sure it should be in the Old Testament because God's name's not mentioned, and some other questionable things that even the good characters do. Like, why is Esther married to a pagan king when the law, you know, prohibited that and on and on? Which really, if you think about it, the narrator who, who writes the story really doesn't comment one way or another. It kind of leaves it up to us. There's a lot of things that are ambiguous that it's kind of left up to us to decide. Because the point of this story to me is, which is brought out by the fact that God's name's not mentioned, is with all these characters in the Old Testament, they're not our moral examples per se. They all had flaws. Whether you're talking about David, Samson, Jephthah, you name them. Moses, Moses wasn't even allowed in the promised land. So they all had a flaw. They're not all the Lord Jesus Christ, are they? And, and the Bible doesn't hide their flaw. But the point of the story with Esther is God's hand is directing everything, even people with flaws, even people like us. That's the point. But I think what's ironic about Luther not liking Esther is he's highly one of the, the leaders in the Protestant Reformation you know, this tremendous event that occurred because God has his hand directing people and events, much in the same way as is what's going on here in this book. I mean, he's directing people, governments, economies, and science, having directing all of that to bring to the climax this event known as the Protestant Reformation. All came to a head in a point of time. And Philip Schaff who is a well-known church historian, said this. He said, the Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. You could say it has shaped our world into what it is today, including how we are here in America. But if you've ever read of the events that all came together to bring about the Reformation, it's obvious God had his hand in all of them. For one thing, he had to raise some of the greatest Christian minds that we've ever had. Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. Calvin and Luther especially, these men were not ordinary thinkers. They were blessed with insight and revelation into the Word of God that is uncommon. And I still enjoy reading those guys today. Also, you had the invention of the printing press took place right at that time. So before, to have a Bible, only the rich could have books. Bibles were in churches and the other thing is, Bibles were written in what language? Latin, which meant the common person, you and me, we would have had no idea what that book said unless the priests told us what they thought it said, which is what was going on a lot of time. So here people were in the dark, the printing press comes along, and now the common man can get the Bible in his own language. The Catholic Church also, it is the church 
There is no other church. All these Calvin, Luther, Augustine, all these great theologians were trained as Catholics. That's the way they started off. But the Catholic church was totally corrupt. It was really heretical at this point. And so here, what brought this on is the Catholic Church is oppressing everybody. They're saying, if you want to have your sins forgiven, you have to buy indulgences. And that's so they could get their coffers because they wanted to redo Rome. They wanted to make everything look great again. They're taking money from the poor people and the rich. And the poor people, if you can't afford these indulgences, guess what? You're going to purgatory. Only the rich are going to make it into heaven. And it's just creating, you know, some resentment in the people against the Catholic Church. And also you have the Renaissance, which took place at this time. Now, this wasn't a religious movement. The Renaissance was people are trained and beginning to learn to think, to learn how to think for themselves. And they're starting to question the abuses and the authorities of the Catholic Church. And because of all of these things, there is this great thirst in people at that time for truth. There really was. So God takes all of these factors and singly brings them to a head in the Protestant Reformation. That is why we are here today hearing the Word of God and not celebrating Mass. Because that's what church was all about. And you go to a Catholic thing, the Mass is the center of everything that goes on. Not the Word of God, not the preaching of the Word of God. That's a little 10 or 15 minute homily that is basically nothing. And so because of this Protestant Reformation that God had all his hands in, we get to sit here and now the word of God is the main event that takes place, or I hope it is, in the main event in our lives. It's also, you could look at the same way when the 1900s with the great Pentecostal movement that took place in different places all over the earth, God is moving on people. He's moving on. He's creating this hunger. He's stirring up people for a holy walk, for more of God, and brings that all together to where then he pours out his spirit on thirsty people. So he created that thirst and brought the right people together, didn't he, to to cause that to happen, and on and on and on. So God's name isn't mentioned in Esther, but I think it's intentionally not mentioned because to me it just makes his providence and the fact that his hand is involved in what goes on in that story all the more incredible. Because just think about the things that happen in all of our everyday lives and others. That God's name's not mentioned, but yet he has his hand in all of them. All of these events that have happened in your life to bring you to salvation, to bring you to the Holy Spirit, to bring you to the point you're willing and wanting to receive truth. Think about that. You can look back. This person crossed your path. This person shared the gospel with. This person was preaching on the radio that you happened to hear that dealt with your heart or whatever. Or this relative prayed for you. All of these things that happen, these events that happen that bring us to certain places that shape and mold our lives. God's hand is in all of it. And that's what we're seeing here in Esther. So I would say to the spiritually minded, not that Luther wasn't, but God's name and hand are screaming in every chapter of Esther. We looked last time at the first three chapters of Esther and and in those chapters we're introduced to the five main characters. And just a quick recap in chapter one, we see in chapter one how life in the king's palace is run. So this king Ahasuerus throws a great party. It lasts for six months, quite a party. And in the last week of the party, everybody starts drinking. And so he's full of wine after seven days and he's in a really good mood, feeling pretty good. Calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come. And before all the people, it says, and all the officials, he wants her to put on display her beauty. 
And she refuses to do that. She says, I'm not giving myself over to the eyes of all these half-drunk, lustful men. And she refuses to come. And because of that, the king is furious. And he decides, for the sake of all men in their homes, all the men in the kingdom, he is going to banish Vasti and make a decree against her and her unsubmissive spirit. He's going to make a decree that men have to be the king's of their castles, so to speak, and everyone has to speak their language at home. I mean, how do you dictate that? I don't know how well that worked. But what we're getting out of that is that this king is painted as an impulsive and powerful dictator. So he's not this just, understanding, and merciful king as God would be. But what we're seeing is this king's court is not going to be an easy place to get your way, is it? That's what the Lord's trying to tell us through what we're seeing here in chapter one. It's not going to be an easy place. This guy is totally unpredictable, I would say, unless God is in control. And that's what we see in this book. And then in chapter two, we get introduced to Esther and Mordecai. The king needs a new queen and he goes on the hunt. So all the young virgins in the kingdom are gathered up, all the ones that are beautiful and 400 are selected as finalists. And Esther happens to be one of them. So she's a beautiful young woman. She's raised by her cousin Mordecai, and both of them are Jewish. Mordecai, though, tells her, he says, I don't want you to reveal your nationality to anybody. All these things are critical parts of the story. And against all odds, this little orphan girl, Esther, becomes the queen, chosen to be queen. And we said God gives her favor with everybody that she comes in contact with. The man who's in charge of beautifying the virgins. It says everybody that sees her, she has favor with. And most importantly of all, it says the king. She has favor with the king. Now, I think this favor she's having, I think there had to be all kinds of gorgeous women. But I think there was something about her that was different more than just her outward looks. I think God, through his grace, gave her a supernatural inner beauty that only the Spirit of God can give. He does that. He does that to me with Christian women that are redeemed. I mean, because you can see some of these starlets, some of these pictures of these people that are the movie stars, the singers, and they are beautiful, but they have this hard look about them because they're not saved. Versus, you see, a saved woman, I mean, they may not even necessarily be the most attractive, but there is something about them that the Spirit of God gives. And I think that's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3.3. He says to the wives, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Now, he does say merely outward. So I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think, you know, you have to look as plain and as repulsive as you can as a woman. I don't think there's anything wrong with a little makeup, wearing a nice dress. You don't have to, like, you know, it used to be the old blue jean skirts with everybody wore those. I mean, I don't think it has to be like that, per se. And he says, don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. But, Peter goes on to say, rather, he says, let this be your emphasis, though. Nothing wrong with the other. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And I'm saying, I think that's what comes out of a truly godly woman. I do want to talk about modesty of dress, though, because it does say that women are to dress modestly. And when you look at 1 Timothy 2, the words that are used there are proper, respectful, and appropriate. Now, I just got an email from a sister asking me about 
this thing about women wearing pants. And I told her, well, for me, the issue isn't so much pants or dresses because I have seen dresses on Christian women that are as so tight and so hiked up and so revealing. It's like, is it really the dress? Is that the, the issue? And I've seen pants or pant type things that to me, they're not exposing anything. It's modest and it's what's appropriate. Now, there was a time in church, why would you wear jeans to church? This is church. I had somebody, they asked me what I thought they were coming with their shirt hanging out. And I'm like, well, I mean, you think that's an appropriate, respectful way to come to church? The New York Yankees, a heathen baseball team, they don't let their men grow mustaches or beards. They have to keep their hair trimmed to a certain level. They have to wear their baseball hat straight. You go up there to the park, well, Mr. Wiley, you wouldn't walk out on the baseball field with your shirt untucked. Either baseball hat sideways or backwards. You had to wear that right. So we should at least not show that much respect at church with how we dress, even at our church events, because here's the problem. Why should your curves as a woman or a man, either way, why should they be revealed that someone has to overcome lust at church of all places? I shouldn't even have to say any of that. Your heart should tell you. So really, you say, well, God just looks at the heart. But yeah, but the way you dress shows what's in your heart, too, I think. You know, we went to a black funeral earlier this week. And I'll tell you, I was impressed because I've been to the the white funerals that I've been at lately. And there's no telling how people are going to come dress. These black people, almost to a man, they all had suits and ties on. Showed respect. And to me, it fits what's being said there in 1 Timothy 2. It was appropriate for the occasion. Amen. But I'm saying all that to say I still think it was this inner beauty that attracted the king to Esther and it gave her an attraction to everyone else. Not only how she looked outwardly, and I don't think she worried about how much makeup she could get caked on or lipstick. or I don't think that was her big concern, really. And that's not what gave her favor in the eyes of man. Amen. So we move on to chapter three. And we're introduced to our final character, old Haman, wicked Haman. And like we said, he's introduced as Haman the Agagite, which tells us he's a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, who were the long-standing enemies of the Jewish people. And God, we said way back in Exodus, pronounced a curse on the Amalekites when they sought to destroy Israel as just his newborn nation in the desert. And he promised this. He says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So when Haman doesn't get the respect and the homage from Mordecai that everybody else is giving him, and when he finds out that he's a Jew, a Benjamite Jew, he comes up with the scheme. He is infuriated by this, not only to destroy Mordecai, but the whole Jewish race. And he lies to the king, says they don't obey any of your laws, which was not true. And he gets the king to give him permission to sign a decree that said it would destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, and to plunder their possessions. Now there's a spirit at work here. The Jews have been under attack and there's been a lot of groups that have stated their goal is to utterly wipe them out from the face of the earth. The Amalekites, I'm always bringing up Hitler, but there's a big one there. But even up into today, that's Iran. They don't even apologize. They just outright state and a lot of the Arabs, 
that their goal is to just utterly annihilate and they aren't going to be happy just like Haman. He wasn't going to be satisfied until all these Jews are gone. And that's what Iran will say. And so Paul asked a question in Romans 11. One, he says this, he says, I say, then, has God cast away his people? And his answer to that was certainly not. Because he says, for one thing, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew. I mean, I'm not cast away as part of his answer. He says, certainly not. And he goes on to say at the, towards the end of that chapter that blindness of part has happened to Israel until all the Gentiles come in. But then he goes on to say, but when that happens, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the kingdom, it says, and then so all Israel will be saved. And he quotes Isaiah here, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with him. That will be something to behold, won't it? When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to save his people, when they're out to be destroyed again by the nations of this earth, the Antichrist comes and hits the Mount of Olives that splits in two and they see him for who he is. I mean, that is just going to be tremendous. Read Zechariah. It's just going to be tremendous. But there are a lot of people today. I went to a seminary. I hate to say this, where a lot of the students and a lot of the professors don't believe Israel regaining their nation in 1948 is any big deal. They will actually say it's no bigger deal than Louisville becoming a metro. No bigger deal. It's just something that happened. And I'm just thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Because, okay, most of the Jews today are atheists. That's just the way it is. They're secular, but they are still God's chosen people. They are the best in the arts, in science, in music. And I would almost say it seems like in everything. <laughs> That's where they are. So why is there this anti-Semitism? And it's growing in the world. It is. It's big time over in Europe. And here we are. We're in this world now, in this politically correct place where we're supposed to love everybody. What, everybody but the Jews? And Christians, I'm saying it almost doesn't even make sense. Now, I heard this preacher say that he thought this anti-Semitism came because Christians and Jews remind the world that there is a God and it bothers their conscience. So there may be something to that, but I really don't know that that's it, because I think there's a spirit that operates through the world that hates the Jews out of what? Out of envy. Because this spirit that is working, that operates through the world, the God of this age, Satan is jealous of all of God's children. And he wants to destroy us and the Jews. Why is that? Because he knows his doom is sure, as the song goes. And he knows that he has forever, the devil's not stupid. He knows that he has forever fallen out of favor with God, never to regain it. He knows that. He had drugged some of us away. He's going to drag as many as he can away. But he knows by God's grace, some have regained their favor with God that had lost it. And he can't stand that. He's jealous. He's envious. When Pilate's going to sentence Jesus, it says twice. It says it in Matthew and it says it in Mark. These people, they weren't defending God to deliver up the Lord Jesus Christ. It says what? It says he knew they delivered Jesus from what? From envy. It says it's the same spirit working through them and it's alive today. Proverbs 27, 4 says wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who can stand before envy or jealousy?
And that's the way it is for Haman. If you'll look there in verse 5 of chapter 3, look what it says. It says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now he gets the king's approval. Because of that, the spirit worker threw him to destroy the Jews, and he writes a decree that calls for their total destruction, sends it to all the provinces out there, and he is one happy camper. Because look at the very end of chapter 3 in verse 15. Sent the couriers are out. They're sending out this decree. They went out, hastened by the king's command. And the decree to destroy the Jews was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. And look at the end there. So the king and Haman, they sit down to drink. They're happy. But the city of Shushan, they don't understand this. What have these people done? It says the city of Shushan was perplexed. And that brings us to chapter 4. And let's begin reading chapter 4. Beginning of verse 1, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, it says, He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he wouldn't accept them. And then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded to him. 
So what we have here in chapter four is we have two different reactions to the news of Haman's decree. Two different reactions we see in Mordecai and Esther. If you look back again in verse one, here's Mordecai's reaction. It says, when he learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry and went as far as the front of the king's gate. For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Mordecai isn't the least bit hindered from expressing his feelings, is he? He tears his clothes, cries out. Now, part of that, I think, might be from, and we'll talk about this a little more, knows from the fact that he knows this decree has been issued because he refused to bow to Haman, and he feels the burden of that. Now, this whole idea of tearing the clothes and crying out in distress and mourning, it's common in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. Numbers 14 when they came back and the spies get the people all worked up and the people are saying, hey, let's get us a leader. Forget Moses. Let's get us another leader to take us back into Egypt. It said Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. Tore their clothes. Hey, it's a distressful thing. That's what happened. In 2 Samuel 1, when David hears that Jonathan and Saul have been murdered, his reaction in, he tears his clothes and weeps and mourns. And I could name a dozen other things, but over in the Middle East, they express their grief openly. They do, if you've ever seen any newscasts on it, whereas here, men are like half embarrassed to cry over a death or whatever. We're just not nearly as free. But I'm saying even Jews up to this day, my great-grandfather, Spiegelman, was his name. It's my father's mother's dad. He was a butcher, a Jewish butcher. And when he learned that my German grandfather, my dad's dad, had impregnated his favorite Jewish daughter. And I'm saying, I saw pictures of my grandmother. I didn't know what she looked like. My dad one time, a few years back, I was sitting there and I thought, she is beautiful. I told my dad, I said, she is absolutely beautiful. She was like an Esther. His prized daughter. And this Gentile who was staying in an apartment above their butcher shop. He, they have an affair and they're not married and all that. And he literally tears his clothes off. I mean, my dad, he literally tore his clothes off and he was just this big brawny guy and proceeded to start try, thinking he was going to punch out my grandfather who was shorter than I am. He was a little short man, but the problem that Grandpa Spiegelman didn't know about was he was a Golden Gloves boxer. <laughs> the butcher shouldn't have messed with the boxer because the boxer took care of him. But the point is, they still do it today. It literally was his reaction. He literally tore his clothes. <laughs> had him that upset. So what's significant here to me is not so much Mordecai's reaction, that's important, but it's where he displays it. He doesn't just sit at home, but he goes where? He says he goes right to the front of the king's gate. That's as far as he could go because kings back then, they didn't want somebody in there mourning, looking sad. Remember Nehemiah? He's looking sad and he was afraid. The king's like, what are you doing? You've never looked that way being my cupbearer all these years. What's going on, Nehemiah? Because those kings, they didn't want sadness there and that could be... To the Russian front, show a little sadness there. That wasn't a good thing. But Mordecai, the thing we're seeing here, he is not ashamed. He's a Jew. He's proclaiming that to anybody that will listen. He's saying, look, death is proclaimed on all my people. They're my brothers. They're my fellow sufferers. They're my companions in tribulation, as John said. And he's crying out basically in front of the capital, in front of the king, in front of whoever will listen. God help us Jews. Didn't he? He's not hiding a thing. His conscience wouldn't allow him to bow to Haman. Wouldn't allow him to bow. And he had to obey his conscience. But through that now, he's not the only one in trouble, is he? 
all of his people are in trouble. And one point I want to make out of that is the burdens we sometimes carry, the convictions we have, these are the burdens that we carry because the convictions that we have not only affect us, but our convictions sometimes affect our spouses, affect our children, and affect our church, don't they? And that's not always an easy burden to carry. But here's what we see. We must always obey God no matter the cost, shouldn't we? Because even after this edict, Haman comes back around, we'll see later, he still isn't bowing the knee to him, is he? He wouldn't do it because his conscience says, you can't do that as one of God's people. Bow your knee to this man. And so when the apostles are threatened, all of them are brought in there to threaten. You need to quit preaching and teaching in this name. Happened more than once. It's going to affect the church. What did they say? Oh, yeah, we'll be a little more discreet about this. They said, I'm sorry. We cannot but tell what he's told us to say. And he says, we must obey God's what Peter said, the spokesman of the group. We must obey God. Must. Have to. Don't have an option. That's what that word must be. He said, we must obey God rather than man. But I think Jehoshaphat felt this same burden when he encouraged the people of Judah to trust the Lord, didn't he? That was what he taught them. And that's what they were encouraged to do. He said, God will protect him. And in 2 Chronicles 20, when that great multitude from Moab and Ammon and other places, they come up to attack Jerusalem. Here is Jehoshaphat's prayer. He says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do. He says, but our eyes are upon you. That's his prayer. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are upon you. And it says, now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. He's praying this prayer and he realizes the fate of this whole nation. And we're going to fight these people, our whole nation. It's our wives, our children, our little ones are at risk. And that's a burden for him, I'm sure. But listen, God came through, didn't he? And sometimes God's people are called to obey when it not only gets themselves, but others in trouble. Charles Spurgeon had a lot of wisdom, and he said this about Mordecai. He says, that good man must have bitterly lamented his unhappy fate in being the innocent cause of the destruction of his nation. He put on sackcloth and cast ashes on his head and was full of sorrow, a sorrow which we can hardly comprehend. For even if you know you have done right, yet if you bring down trouble and especially destruction upon the heads of others, it cuts you to the quick. And Matthew Henry basically agreed with Spurgeon with what he just said there, but he added this though which we need to add this. He added this, he says, he could, meaning Mordecai, with comfort, commit his own cause and that of his people to him, meaning God, that judges righteously. God will keep those that are exposed by the tenderness of their consciences. And I thought that was good. If we're obeying the Lord and our hearts right with him, we don't have to fear the consequences, even if we're putting others in danger. We have to do what's right, don't we? By the Lord. And God is faithful. He is. If you're struggling with that or not, I'm saying God is faithful. That's what his book teaches. This is where we get our answers to things, didn't it? If 
we're going to give that up, then there's a lot of other churches out there that don't believe the Bible, won't teach about it, then you're free to go. But that's what the Bible teaches. I'm not giving my opinion about these things. But the thing Mordecai didn't do was distance himself from his people to keep himself out of trouble. But we got Queen Esther now, and she's a different story because she's brought to a point of crisis. You know, you think about this. She kind of got swept into the king's palace. This wasn't a position that she looked for. These circumstances, or however you want to say it, God's hand brought her to this place. Because it, if you read, go back in the account, everything's in the passive when it talks about her being brought in to be the king's, you know, she was taken. And she was taken before the king. I'm saying it's things that she's kind of being swept by the current, the current just kind of, of life just kind of taking her along, if I can put it that way. But now at this point, she has got to make a decision. A commentator made this. I thought this was an excellent point. She is the only character in the book of Esther that has two names, that has two identities. So she's known by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, is given in the story. And she's also known as her Persian name, Esther. So she's raised as a Jew by Mordecai. But when she's thrust into the king's court, she's got to live like a pagan, doesn't she, at this point? And so far, everything's gone all right. But now she has to ask herself the question, am I going to identify myself with the people of God? And the decision she makes, it's going to define her life for here on out and determine the destiny of her people. And this is where we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility, human freedom. They intersect because Esther can no longer straddle the fence, can you? She can no longer be a quote unquote secret service Christian. One black guy that used to come to our church, he had that song he wrote up. He said, uh, for people that like to just blend in and they're never going to stand for the Lord, they're never going to give a testimony, they're never going to say anything that's going to make them stand out as a Christian and different from anybody else. He used to have that little song and, and one of the lines went, Secret Service Christian, God's going to blow the cover on your religion. And I always thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> going to blow the cover on your religion. She hesitates at first, doesn't she? Mordecai doesn't just ask her to plead with the king on behalf of the people. He commands her. Look in verse 8 of chapter 4. Look what it says. He also gave him a copy, this man to go in to show it to Esther, a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and to plead before him for the people. She is just not really all that ready to obey this command, is she? Because look what it says in verse 11. Again, she says, you go back and you command this to Mordecai. Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know any man or woman who goes into that inner court to the king who has not been called. He has but one law. Put him to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I haven't been called for 30 days. Go tell Mordecai that. And so what's going on here is she's saying, in essence, Mordecai, you don't know what you're asking me to do. I might die. And Mordecai's, yeah, you might die. But guess what? You're going to die or you might die either way. Now, you're certainly going to die. He's telling her his answer back to her is with the king's decree from Haman. And this decree you had nothing to do with. You were basically, in a sense, set up by Satan. He says, but this other death that you're afraid of, that's not so certain, is it? He says, because the king, he could have mercy on you or you could perish. 
But at least then, if you do perish, you'll die doing the right thing before God. And he says, and who knows whether God has placed you here and you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. She's got to make a decision. Whose side is she on? And we have those little decisions to make all the time, don't we, on a daily basis. Who are we going to stand with? Are we going to side up with the world so they'll like us and they'll be our friends? Or are we going to take a stand for the Lord and stand out and lose their approval? And it could come to the point of death. You know, I talked about that movie last week with that little Jewish boy. Well, at the end of the movie, he finally found this loving Polish family that accepted him. And he was very secure and happy. There was a little girl about his age. I mean, he liked living there. Well, what happened is this Jewish adoption orphan organization finds out about him. And they send an agent to this farm. And the agent tells that boy, he says, the Jewish people, we need young men like you to keep our race alive. And he's wanting to get him sent over to Israel is what it is. And he tells him, he says, like Esther, you have to make a choice. Now, if you remember, his father had told him the last time he saw his father, and his father was killed shortly thereafter when he ran one way to get the Germans to chase him while his boy could escape the other way into the woods. The last thing his father told him is is. No matter what you have to do, what you have to say, do never forget this. You are a Jew. That's your identity. And his agent tells the boy, he says, I'll let you decide where you want to go. I'll take you wherever you want to go. You get back in my car. They've been talking out in the field. He says, we'll get back on that road and we're going to reach a fork in the road. And he said to the left that will take you to the Kowalski's farm. And there was peace and security and happiness for that little boy. He goes, but if we go to the right, it's going to be taking you to the Jewish orphanage. And he says, you must choose. And the scene ends where you see that guy's car going down the road and it gets at a fork in the road. Boom, it's off to the right. So that boy is named Serlik. He chose to be with his people despite like Esther, despite all the potential hardships and trials, because there was a lot coming their way to be a Jew back at that time, at the end of the war. A lot of trouble. That's what he chose. Went back to Israel, as I told you. He went back to Israel and lived there. And God blessed him. So here's the thing. We may not be faced with all the same situations like Esther or whoever. Like I said, he puts us in circumstances that we have to choose who we will identify with, whether it's the world or whether it's going to be God's people. And really, that's the decision we're faced with at the new birth, isn't it? If you would, put something there in Esther and turn back with me to 1 Peter 4. And verses 1 to 5, Peter writes this. He says, therefore, here's what we need to be confronted with. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Peter says, arm yourself also with that same mind. Be willing to suffer for the Lord, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men. But how should we live? For the will of God. Verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Well, they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And he's saying right there, unsaved person, whether you grew up in this church or you were one of those 
worldly heathens like I was and some others were. He's saying, you spent enough of your time doing the will of the Gentiles, doing the will of the world. He said, you, you had to make a break. That should all be behind you now. And arm yourselves with the same mind that the Lord Jesus. This walk in this world is not meant to be some kind of cakewalk and enjoying all the pleasures of the world like the world does. He said, you had all that before. You saw where the end of that was. He's saying, now you should have your heart and your mindset, which is what Esther had to do. She had to get her mind and heart set to where I've been enjoying this, living in this king's palace now for five years, but I'm going to take a stand with God's people. And I don't know what that's going to bring. That's probably the end of that. She didn't know. If I perish, I perish. But that's what Peter's telling us there, isn't he? Many defining moments. So we're going to live like the world or God's people. And one decision would be choosing whom you're going to marry. For instance, you want to talk about a defining decision in your life. Now, the Bible, I don't think, couldn't be any clearer. And we've heard this before. It couldn't be any clearer that we're not to be yoked to unbelievers. And what I find is everybody's a believer these days. Well, he told me he was a Christian. She told me she was a Christian. And that just makes it okay. If you don't see fruit in their lives or they're doing things that you know are wrong, they can say whatever they want to, can't they? If they're doing things that you read in 2 Corinthians, you know, it's drunkenness, fornication, those things, and something, and you're going to say, I don't care what they say. They got a filthy mouth, no love for the Lord. That's a problem there. You know, I just read of a woman she said when she was a young lady, she desired to be a missionary, but she went to college and met a young man who wasn't a Christian. And you can guess the rest of the story. And we could multiply out the stories of people that knew better and they make a decision that shapes the rest of their lives because divorce isn't an option. Especially probably hard for a young person in here that marries the wrong person. And then they're stuck in a situation that they're like, man. Now, God can redeem anything, can he? And let me say this, too. When we talk about sins, whether it's lust, adultery, any of those things, drunkenness, if somebody has done that at some point, none of those things are the unpardonable sin, okay? So you're not hearing me because you did something three years ago, five years ago, or whatever. I'm holding that over anybody's head if you've repented. None of us should do that, should we? If we know somebody has fallen in this church and they've repented and things are right between them and the Lord, they've repented. They're no longer that, are they? I just want to throw that in there. But yet, you know, these decisions that you make that seem like insignificant things that can define the small things, cheating on your taxes, cheating on a test, cheating on your mate. A lot of these things, they have long term consequences, don't they? And that's what we need to see. Esther's faced with that. This decision she's going to make is going to have long-term consequences, not only for her life, but for the life of her people. Listen, to this: when the going gets tough, which it will, and it is, and we're going to be faced more and more with decisions like Esther, the question is, will we take a stand with God's people, or will we forsake truth to gain the approval of the world? And I'm sorry, that's what I see happening in our church. Things that were supposedly convictions that are, to me, still clearly taught in the Word of God, now they become options. And people feel like they can do whatever they want. Well, sure you can do whatever you want. I'm not a dictator up. I never have been. You can do whatever you want, but you're going to have to give an answer to God one day. And truths just seem to be falling by the wayside. 
easily forsaken. And Paul had a traveling companion. He reached a crisis point. Second Timothy 4, it says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. And he was right there side by side with Paul, but when things started getting rough and all of a sudden the world just looked like a whole lot more pleasant place and he didn't like the world constantly. He's tired of that fight. It's just easier to give in to him and blend back in with him. And that's what he said he did. Having loved this present world, Paul said he forsook me and departed for Thessalonica. And I say it all comes down. You all want to know what we need in our church here? It starts in Romans 12. Body ministry is the end of Romans 12. That's all part of it, right? But Romans 12 starts where? In verse 1. And that's where it begins. You know where it gets back to in verse 1? You know what verse 1 and 2 tells us? That we have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And until you do that, if you've lost that, if you've pulled yourself off the altar, then all of the rest of it, it's not going to work. It's not going to work and programs aren't going to make it any better. We got to get back to being living sacrifices. Like Mordecai told Esther, if you don't want to lay your life on the line for the Lord and his people, because that's what he asked us all to do. Isn't it? Isn't that what salvation is according to the Bible? Isn't it? If any man wants to come after me, he's got to hate father, mother, sister, brother. Yea, in his own life also, or he cannot be my disciple. It's impossible. You're not going to make it in. That's just one of the prerequisites. That's the beginning But the Lord will say, if you won't do that, he'll find somebody that will. If you won't be sold out for my cause, I'll find somebody. They may be in South America. They may be in Ethiopia. They may be in Iran. They may be in North Korea. But those people, they will see God move. Because they're not afraid. Those people, they have to deal with that. They have to come to that crisis point to where they're going to lose their family. They're going to probably be in prison. They probably are going to have to trust God for food and everything else. And they're not afraid to die or be in prison. And God will work through them and for them. So this text here in chapter 4 shows us the two sides of walking with God. So listen, there is the threat of perishing if we don't obey Him. But there's also, isn't there the great promise of purpose and future glory and reward if we do obey him. And the great example of that is Noah. It says Noah walked with God. Now part of it is he obeyed, it says, because he feared. He knew if he didn't do what God said, what would happen to him? He's going to perish with the rest of the world. Guaranteed, isn't it? So his obedience in that sense was out of fear. And it really, I guess you could say it was optional, but it wasn't if he wanted to live. Isn't that what Mordecai's telling her? You don't have to obey, but you will perish. You want to blend in with the world, you'll blend in for a while, but you will be found out and you'll perish, you and your family. And that was Noah. But Noah, on the other hand, if he didn't obey, there was this fear motivating him. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the fear of God motivating you. But he knew if he did obey, there was a reward and a purpose, just like with Esther, wasn't it? He obeyed the Lord. He's going to build an ark. He's going to save himself, but not only just himself. Who else is he going to save? His family, isn't he? So in that sense, there's a positive part of having your decisions, your convictions affecting others in a good way, won't it? Compromise is never going to help you or your family. Noah wasn't popular, was he? And he had to believe the impossible. It never happened before. That's the way it was.
The second great truth I want to see here in this chapter is even though God's hand is moving, motivating, controlling all the events we've talked about, there still is this human responsibility. So when Esther is faced with the crisis and when she decides I'm going to cast in my lot with the Jews, with God's people, she doesn't just resign herself to fate then, does she? After she does that, go back to Esther 4 and look in verse 15. She doesn't resign herself to fate. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish, is what she said. God had ordained. It was already ordained. Now, she didn't know it from her side, but he'd already ordained that he would deliver his people through Esther. That was part of the eternal plan, wasn't it? But also part of that plan was that she and Mordecai and all the Jews in Shushan would fast and pray. That was also part of God's eternal plan and that he would answer that prayer. All of that's involved. The providence of God, the fact that he is controlling all events, doesn't leave us to fate. That's what we're seeing here in Esther, isn't it? It doesn't relieve us of prayer, doesn't just give us over to fate, but it should be a great motivator to pray. Once again, Spurgeon said this, my brethren, prayer is an essential part of the providence of God. So essential that you will always find that when God delivers his people, his people have been praying for that deliverance. So when there is impending judgment, God calls his people to pray and to fast and to seek him. And we see that pattern throughout the Bible. We've already talked about 2 Chronicles 20 with Jehoshaphat. When that army comes, he doesn't just say, oh, God, you'll deliver us. You're our great deliverer. No, it says he feared and proclaimed a fast for all the people. They prayed about it. They got before the Lord. And what about when Jonah goes into Nineveh? What did those people do? God's impending judgments coming yet 40 days and he's going to destroy this place. And what did those people do? The Holy Spirit motivated them. They fasted and they prayed. And what happened? It was all ordained by God. He turned his hand of judgment away from them. Joel 2, if you read Joel 2, the beginning of that chapter, God pronounces a harsh judgment on Zion. And then after that, though, he calls his people to seek him. He says, now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me. I pronounce judgment. He says, but turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Fasting, weeping, mourning, that's the exact same language that's used here at the beginning of Esther chapter 4. And here's what the Lord goes on to say in Joel 2. He says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Who knows? If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to humble myself before the Lord because there's a bad situation coming. One I know about. And Esther did what Joel commands. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. That's what she did. You go tell Mordecai and all those people, we need to get before the Lord. I'm sounding an alarm. We got a problem here. Need to pray. And the last thing I'd like to say about our responsibility is God has given us duties to do. And that's a dirty word in today's society. 
even though he's working behind the scenes with Esther and Mordecai the whole time they met their duties. For instance, Mordecai had a duty to raise his orphaned cousin. Because in the Old Testament law, God said that you had better meet the needs of orphans and widows, especially, right? Don't just neglect them. Don't turn your head when you see that they need help. And he was also doing his duty at the end of chapter 3 when the king, he's respecting authority, the king, right? And he overhears that assassination plot. All he's doing is his duty to report that so that this doesn't happen to the king. He's not looking for a reward. Doesn't even get rewarded. He's just doing it because he's duty, because he just goes on about his business. He does. Did what was right and moved on, but God saw what he did. So we have the same thing for us. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 talks about giving, talks about fasting, talks about praying. It says we should do those things, not because we feel like it, and it doesn't say we should do them so that everyone at church will see how holy and righteous and pious we are, does it? What does it say? The reason we do that is because who's going to see it and who's going to reward us? God. And he's faithful to do that. We can trust that. Believe me, he is. And so that's what Esther's doing here. She's doing her duty, praying, fasting, going to the king on behalf of her people. And when you do your duty, you have to leave the results in the hands of God, right? If I perish, I perish. And the great Samuel Rutherford said, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. Duties are ours and events are the Lord's. And in Acts chapter 9, it says there that there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and he was doing his duty. What was he doing? He was praying. And when in the midst of his praying, what happened? God gave him a vision, didn't he? And in his vision, he says, Arise, go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So he's doing his duty. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. Now, what if Ananias decided to pull his cell phone out? God's put it on his heart to pray. Look at here. I got a brand new video game and he's doing that. And he's supposed to be down there praying for Saul. Old Saul been walking around blind all of his life, wouldn't he? And that's the problem when we aren't doing our duties. When you're not reading your Bible, there's a word the Lord has for you there. And maybe the Lord is going to show you something that you can share with somebody else that will help you. But when you're not reading your Bible, you're doing something else. So in these so-called duties, you have to discipline yourself. God works through them. That's what's happening here with Mordecai, with Esther, through these duties. And we have duties as Christians. If you're married, you have a duty to your wife. And somebody's like, well, I'm going to divorce her. I just don't feel anything for her anymore. The love is gone. Is that the way it is? You have a duty. What does love have to do with that? Didn't you make a vow and make a covenant before God? You have a duty to keep that whether you have any love or not there. That's not the point, is it? We have a duty to provide for our children, don't we? For our wives and our children, we have a duty to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not to let your kids act like wild Indians. They should obey you when you ask them to do something, not look at you and go on and do whatever they want to do. They shouldn't be wild Indians to where I don't want that kid coming to my house because I got to put everything up seven feet high. Why should that be the case? 
You can train your children in a nice, loving way to not be the terror by night that's spoken of in Psalm 91. I don't know if that's children he's talking about there. But don't we as Christians have duties to our employers to show up on time and work hard? We have a duty to the government to obey its laws and pay taxes. And here, this one, I'm glad we have little rocks out in the parking lot and not big ones because, let me add, we have a duty to the church, this church. It says in Hebrews 10, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I didn't write that, but I would say you have a duty when we're called to meet here for fellowship, for prayer, and whenever we have a called assembly. Like Brother Hamilton used to say, so it's his obligation to be at church on time every week and he can't have all the excuses everyone else has. And I told you, like I said, I'm glad we got little rocks out in the parking lot. Let me end by saying when you meet your duty, you do not know what will happen. And that's another reason when you're not at fellowship, you may just be have been the person that had the word I needed to hear. And you're not here because you're doing whatever. Something else came up. Somebody's more important. Some other group of people are more important than these people here. This is just basic course 100 teaching that we heard in our church years back. That just seems to not matter anymore. Honestly, I mean, that's fine. I'm just saying it because it's my duty to say it, honestly, because I sat there and listened to Brother Hamilton. For, we all did for years. Why don't people come on Wednesday night? Why don't people come to this? Why don't people come to that? So it's you ignore me. Well, you ignored him. He had gravitas. I don't. But you still could ignore him and it's no big deal. And then we wonder, how come things are dead here? How come things aren't like they used to be? Amen. So, like I say, when you meet your duty, you don't know what will happen. Mordecai got his people in trouble, but in doing his duty. But that was so the Lord could show his mercy on them and be glorified in their deliverance. Esther prayed, fasted, and confronted the king, and the Jews were spared. Their enemy was humiliated by her doing her duty. So God not only lifted up Esther and Mordecai in doing their duties, but the whole Jewish nation. Look over here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. And that crisis did what? It put Esther to three days of death, so to speak. I mean, she is in the garden wrestling, fasting, praying, wrestling with God. But like Jonah in the belly of the great fish for three days, in that wrestling and in coming to that decision and in making that decision to go before the king and do what she had to do, she finds him and his mercy. And I'm saying life springs from a resolved commitment. Life. You want light? It comes from a resolved commitment. We're back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And when Jonah repented, 
of his disobedience, the fish spit him out, didn't he? And he found the mercy of God. Hosea 6, 2 says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us. Jacob wrestled with God in prayer, didn't he? He saw destruction coming his way. His brother Esau's coming with an army is going to kill him. And he didn't just resign himself to faith. He prevailed and wrestled with God, didn't he? But when he saw Esau come, and Esau wasn't coming to give him a kiss, God changed Esau's heart when Jacob wrestled that night because Jacob said, when I saw the face of you, my brother, I saw the face of God because he's seeing a kind, merciful, gentle face that wasn't there before. He said, Esau's got, he's riding hard. He's coming to exact his vengeance. But when you prevail with God, you'll prevail with others. And that's what happened with Esther, didn't it? It's a real test of her faith, isn't it? God allowed that to happen that for 30 days she hadn't been asked to come in and see the king. It's a test of her faith. And she has to prevail with God through her fasting and prayer. But then when she sees the king, he pulls out that scepter to her. Amen. And really, that is a form of the gospel, isn't it? If we come before the Father, we have the death sentence on us. And through what the Lord Jesus Christ did, three days. Now that scepter can be extended to us, and God's mercy is extended to us, isn't it? I mean, that's really what we're seeing there. And Xerxes, he's not God, is he? He's not a heavenly father. He's not even a good husband. But he offers her half the kingdom. What does the father, this is what we're talking about in Galatians, and we will get back there, in adoption. He doesn't offer us half the kingdom. He says, I'll make you a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a part of my family now. Fully accepted. That's what we are. Amen. And what a motivation to walk with the Lord and holiness that should be for us, shouldn't it? Amen. So let's do our duties and let's see the, the Lord move when we do what he asks us to do. Read the Sermon on the Mount and obey what he says. Jesus says the man that does that, he's not going to fall. He's going to have his house built on a rock when the tribulation comes. He'll stand. And isn't that what we want? Yes. Amen. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word and just ask you, Lord, to speak to all of our hearts today and cause us to make the changes, Lord, to seek you more faithfully and, and to see you move in our midst and in our lives, that you want to do that, Lord, that you do love us. And sometimes you speak to correct us, Lord, but you do that in love because you want us to make it. And so we just receive it as such. And we thank you, Lord, for the examples and the illustrations and the stories that you've given us, the things that you've done in other people's lives that we can know that you'll do the same for us, that you're no respecter of persons. And we thank you, God, that you are a faithful, awesome God. And we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.